I'm Imu Shalev, and this is A Book Like No Other. Last episode, Rabbi Foreman suggested that the Tree of Life returns at the burning bush. What's it doing there? It's alerting us to the start of a second chance at the relationship we might have had with God in the garden. You know, if we hadn't messed up and been exiled. This second chance comes to fruition at Sinai, where, in place of the tree, we receive new means for connecting with God. God's words, the Torah. But while the means are new, the method for connecting is the same as in Eden. The tree of life has to come first. We were supposed to approach Sinai nechmad limareh. First, just behold the wonders of Revelation. Just be with God. Listen to his voice and embrace him as yud Vavke. Only, just like in Eden, things don't go exactly as planned. God invites us up Mount Sinai for an unprecedented, holy tree of life moment. We get scared and decline the offer. And that brings us up to speed. That's as far as Rabbi Foreman and I got last time. Which leaves open a lot of questions. Did we learn our lesson from Eden or not? How does our relationship to Torah continue from here? If Sinai was a tree of life moment, what about the tree of knowledge? It doesn't seem right to say that it stays off limits. We clearly do gain access to the Torah's laws and guidance. But if, even at Sinai, we can't seem to fully embrace the Torah as a tree of life, how are we supposed to benefit from it as a tree of knowledge without repeating the disaster of the garden? Without the Elohim in us taking over and blocking out Yudke Vavke completely? Lucky for us, at the end of last episode, Rabbi Foreman admitted something. The return of the tree at the burning bush is only half the story. We're not meant to have all the answers yet. Remember those two trees. I want to suggest that the, what was one tree in the garden with two faces, a tree of life and a tree of knowledge, in a way almost splits into two different trees once we re-meet the tree. One of those trees is the burning bush, but there's another part to the story. Now, I know what you're thinking. The tree you always thought was two trees, but Rabbi Foreman and I just spent this whole podcast convincing you is one tree is actually two trees? If that's confusing, think about it this way. Inside the garden, where God's unity is manifest, the tree is a unity. Outside the garden, in this fragmented world, Rabbi Foreman's suggesting the tree kind of does split in two. It returns in two parts, in two different stories. The burning bush is one of the stories. That's where we re-encounter the tree of life. But we're still missing the tree of knowledge the forbidden fruit. And so, to really understand Revelation and its relationship to Eden, we have to uncover the rest of the story. We have to find those missing fruit. So, how do we do that? Well, the answer is the exact same way we found the tree of life. We need to pick up our magnifying glass and follow the evidence. Remember the key evidence we've seen so far for the tree coming back? It's based on the imagery that the Torah gives us the last time we see the tree, at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Let's just review what that looked like. The tree was being guarded by two angels wielding a fiery revolving sword. And Rabbi Foreman's theory is, where that imagery returns, there lies the tree. We saw a lot of that imagery at the burning bush. And that's what made Rabbi Foreman suggest that the tree returned there. But we actually didn't find everything we were looking for. We've got the fire, we've got the tree in the form of the bush, but we're missing an angel and we're missing a sword. So to complete the set, we need to find the missing angel and the sword. 
And Rabbi Foreman's bet is, wherever we find this pear, that's where we'll find the second half of our story. And of our tree. If you think about the journey of the Exodus, where does the journey from the Exodus culminate? It doesn't culminate at Sinai, it culminates when we get to the land, right? And fascinating, when we get to the land, who do we meet? Just on the cusp of getting to the land, we meet an angel with a sword. Oh, yeah. Joshua, there's an angel and a sword. But there's no tree. There's no tree, and there's no fire. In other words, if you blend Mm -hmm. both stories together, the angel and the sword of Joshua together with the other angel without the sword, but with the fire and the tree. AKA the imagery we saw at the burning bush. And overlay them on each other. You have two angels, sword, fire, tree. So I've been around the block with you or by Foreman multiple times, but never before, you know, when you, when you show me intertextual parallels, are you saying, oh, this story is connected to this story, but uh, let me borrow a word from the third story, and I'll take another thing from another story. Are you, how are you allowed to overlay two random stories? Because they're not random works? stories. Let's go into the story of that angel in Joshua 5. Deal. Okay, so quick primer on Joshua 5. The people have just crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. And before we get to the angel and the sword, we're told a little about those very early days in Israel. The first thing that happens is God comes to Joshua commanding that all the males be circumcised. See, the whole time that they were in the desert, they hadn't performed any circumcisions. But there's something a little strange about how these circumcisions are done, something reminiscent of the burning bush. And that was Rabbi Foreman's first clue that these stories are related. They're circumcised, interestingly, with charvot surim, these swords made out of rock. I mean, who circumcises with a sword? It's almost as if the cherub is back. Oh, by the way, charvot surim, so the sword is back, but sur is also back. But am I wrong here in saying the last sur was also at the burning bush, right? Like, I remember uh, right after the burning bush. This past year, we worked on a a course that you taught on uh, Moshe and Sipora at the inn. So there's a uh, there's a circumcision in that story too. Um, Moshe had not yet circumcised his son, uh, and God encounters him and he, he tries to kill Moshe um, until Tzipora, his wife, actually I think she takes a tzur, right? She takes a she rock has. and she performs a circumcision. So um, there's already here a connection, right? Right next to the burning Good. bush story is a circumcision story with a tzur, and here. This is a circumcision story. Right. So it's almost like the Bible is tipping you off through, you, right? It's saying, okay, do you remember a circumcision story with a rock sword? Uh, there's only one other circumcision story with a rock sword. Happened right after a burning bush story. And that was at the beginning of the journey. The very beginning of the journey of the Exodus is the burning bush. And right after that, there's this circumcision story in a rock sword. And now at the very end of the journey, where the journey is basically up and they're at the gates of Jericho... Here comes a circumcision with a rock sword. So that was one point of connection. But I doubt you're surprised to hear there were more. Now, along with the circumcision with a rock sword, the people, what do they do? They offer a Pesach offering. Oh, well, go back to the burning bush. The burning bush starts this journey, right? And where does the journey really begin? The journey actually gets underway physically with the Pesach offering. And now the journey is ending 
with our rock swords and our Pesach offering. So let's keep on reading. Verse 10. Okay. Um, Israel uh, camps in a place called Gilgal. Uh, they do the the Pesach offering on the 14th day of the month, Ba'erev, in the evening, Ba'arvot Yericho, in the plains of Jericho. Ba'yochlu me'avor ha'aretz, and they eat from uh, the produce of the land, mimocharat Pesach, the day after this Pesach offering, matzot ve'kaloi, matzah and uh, parched grain, be'etzam ha'yomazah, on that self-same day. So this is an epic verse, um, Right, they had never eaten from the produce of the land. Right, they've constantly been promising, been promising them. Yes, isn't it interesting, Emu, that if we're right about this journey being a journey to the tree, to this tree, right, and if we're right about the first time you encounter the tree, it's a tree of life, but the second time mm-hmm. you encounter the tree, it's a tree of knowledge. In what way? Does the tree of knowledge express itself? What part of the tree is the tree of knowledge part of the tree? Fruit. It's fruit. Right. So, oh, wow. very interesting. Wow. That's weird. So, sorry. You mind? It, this is, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. Um, the first time on, uh, we saw this bush and the mental image of a burning bush is, is uh, it's just, uh, it's really all, all bark. It's all branches and nothing else, right? There's no, no fruit on a bush. That's right. Um, and and so right, it's tree of life without any fruit. Now we're almost like we're getting the fruit without any tree. Exactly. This is the missing tree, the fruits of the land. Fascinating. You can hear how excited I was. I think what really got to me was that the fruit didn't come back in some symbolic, esoteric way. They were the actual produce of the land. It made the tree's return feel way more concrete, dare I say, down to earth. Reflecting on this now though, I can imagine some of you objecting. Hey, we're told that they eat grain and matzah. The word pre, fruit, is not actually there in Joshua. And that's true. This isn't a perfect linguistic connection. I think if you're new to Rabbi Foreman's way of learning, it's easy to get starstruck with the wordplay, but what Rabbi Foreman's methodology is really about is deep structural intertextuality, the many ways that the Torah comments on itself to deepen its meaning. Often, these structures are created through shared language, but it can also be through imagery and concepts, as in this case in Joshua. Granted, if on day one where my foreman had sat me down and said, hey, did you know that the tree of knowledge comes back in Joshua? Look, we even eat matzah and grain when we enter Israel. I probably would have laughed at him. But it's seeing this act in the context of everything else we've seen up until now that gives it its power. And from where I'm standing... It's still one of my favorite moments of this adventure. Speaking of which, let's get back to the action. Rabbi Foreman was trying to convince me that Joshua was the second half of the burning bush story. To be more exact, his argument was that Joshua 5 was the end point of a journey that started at the burning bush. And I was starting to accept it. Circumcision, Korban Pesach, these were signposts at either end of the journey. A journey that began with one angel and the return of the tree of life, and now was ending with the return of the Tree of Knowledge and another angel that we had yet to meet. So I was excited to get to that part. But Rabbi Foreman had one more signpost to show me first. So let's keep on reading. Um, so, uh, and so now they're finally in the land. Uh, therefore, the uh, the man ceases, the manna ceases to fall the, the next day. 
in as much as they're now eating uh, that which uh, the land is producing. And, and uh, there was no more manna for the children of Israel. And they are now eating from the produce of uh, land of Canaan. So far there's no more manna. The manna started way back. Not quite at the burning bush, of course, but at the beginning of the Israelites' journey through the desert. And now it was ending. So that was signpost number three, that this journey too was ending. And as we were slowing down to appreciate it, I noticed something. Oh, that's actually kind of funny. The double entendre here. Sorry, go I'm, I'm going to cut you off. No, you go ahead. Good. No, I'm just seeing Vaishbot Haman Nimochorat is such mana uh, language. It is. Right. Uh, uh, right. The very first laws, the actual laws that we get are not the Ten mm-hmm. Commandments. They're laws that came along with mana. And what were they? Well, the main law, right, one of the, the ones that are easiest to remember, is the law of Shabbos. Which is being, as you say, a double entendre alluded here with Bayishbotaman. Wouldn't it be a nice, cool joke if the way the man went out was with the word Shabbos, which is the way the man went in? So what do you mean by that? Explain. Right. Yeah, so the, the law that was eventually given with the manna was that they were allowed to collect every day. But the, the manna did not come out on Shabbos. They were given uh, a break from their free food, right? As if the collecting of free food was so onerous. That was the first introduction of uh, Shabbat in the legal sense. Um, but what's what's funny here is that when the manna ceases, uh, the, the manna itself is taking a Shabbos. Yeah, okay, so you have the rest, which the language of rest, which reminds you of the manna. But there's another law, Imu, which is being referred to here also with the double entendre with the words, because what are the next words? Vaishbot haman. And the manna took a rest on the following day. What law of the manna are you reminded of by the word maharat on the morrow? Well, that was one of the laws that you could not leave over any of the manna that you had. You weren't allowed to hoard the manna, right? And, yes. And- can't hoard, can't try to take, to, to take a little bit and save it for tomorrow. If you did, it would rot. And Imu, so we have two out of the three laws of manna being referred to with this language. But there was a third law, mm-hmm. and the third law doesn't seem to be here. What was the third law? Yeah, my eyes were already hunting while you're talking about it. But I wonder where it is, because now, now I see what you're doing, right, Foreman. This is cool. The last uh, is the manna was a, a certain measure, an omer. Uh, everyone had a, 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 the exact same, an omer level gullet, a, uh, a, an omer for each skull. And I don't see an omer... Uh, here in this verse, but I, I do wonder. But it would be pretty funny, Imu, if only two out of three of the laws got double entendre with this little sly joke for us. It's got to be there somewhere, the Omer Lagulgolet. Only one Omer per person, only one Omer per skull. Take a look at verse 10. Where did the manna stop? Right, that's, that's where I figured we were going. So there, the manna ceased in a place called Gilgal. What a suggestive name. <laughs> yeah, Gilgal and, and uh, Gogola. You got Gugola. it. So, There's the third play on words. That's All cool. three laws of the manna. So it wasn't just the manna itself showing up in Joshua and in Exodus. All three laws associated with the manna were here in the text too. It was like our third signpost had three mini signposts of its own. Interesting, right? Our angel would have to wait. This was worth a closer look. 
To help unpack the meaning of the manna's laws, Rabbi Foreman reminded me of a Shavuot course that he and I had made a few years back about the significance of the manna. Link, as always, is in the description. Now, you and I talked about those three laws, and we talked about what the meaning of those laws were. There was something about these laws that was different, fundamentally different than all the other laws. Remember what we said about how they were fundamentally different? Mm-hmm. I think you're referring to the fact that we said that these laws were self-reinforcing. Exactly. There was, they were impossible to violate. You couldn't violate them. What would happen if you tried collecting the manna on the Sabbath? There just wasn't any manna. You could go outside, but good luck collecting. It didn't fall. What would happen if you tried to store the manna for tomorrow? Uh, the, the Torah says that it would, uh, it would get all wormy and, uh, and spoil. So you, you could not hoard. And what happened if you if you went out into the fields and you collected much more than an omer per skull? Almost like a comedy sketch. You'd say, ha ha, look how much I gathered. But once you measured it, it would just turn out to be an omer no matter what. Exactly. And this isn't a medrash, by the way, that's saying this. This is the right. text that says it. The, right, text, right. <laughs> the text says that's the way it is. Right? It's like crazy. So you and I suggested back then that these are training wheel laws. You mm-hmm. can't transgress them if you try. And the, the theory that we suggested was that it's no wonder that these are the first laws. God is getting us used to law. We had a terrible, traumatic relationship with law back with the old king in Egypt. We had laws that broke us. The laws objectified us for the sake of somebody else. That's right. Yeah, here God you know, is saying, I don't need you to build me any palaces or uh, storehouses for grain. Uh, I'm a God, I don't really need you. These laws are actually for you. That's right. And, and they're, But they're training wheel laws. They're getting you used to the idea of law. I want you to understand with these first laws that these laws are good for you. I want you to be nourished by the laws. Why? Because I got a whole bunch of other laws coming and you need to not <laughs> Get used to these good laws. laws (laughs) Well, the idea is extrapolate from these laws that that laws are good for you. Well, guess what? Now the man is going away. Training wheel law is going away. And what's coming in its place? The land. With real law. The law that you really can transgress, that you can do wonderful things with or transgress and disregard and do terrible things with. Tov and Ra is real now. That's fascinating. Wow. So so uh, the way you're describing it is it's almost like the 40 years in the desert was was not really all all about the keeping of laws. It was about forging a connection with God and God yep. protected us and he nurtured us. But right here in just the span of a few verses, boom boom boom, you've got a nation performing a mass circumcision, a nation performing mass Pesach offering. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have the nation uh, reaping the first fruits of the land. Yep. This is the beginning of a fundamental transformation in our relationship to God's word. Right? Think about it all the time in the desert. You know, we read the Torah. And what are the said over and over? Ki tavo ela aretz. When you come into the land, you're going to do this. All the time in the desert, it's not relevant. Why is it relevant? It's relevant because it's your word. I love your word. I'm enriched by it, but now it's real. You're coming into the land. If Revelation was a second chance at the garden, the details of God's plan B were becoming clearer. Tree of life first, that's Sinai, that's the desert. Tree of knowledge, eating the fruit, that comes second. That kicks in when we come to the land, 
as signified by the literal eating of the land's produce. But Plan B also had something that Plan A didn't. Training wheel laws. Now, in our conversation, Rabbi Foreman explained training wheel laws in the context of the Exodus. They were meant to help a traumatized people see that God wasn't a power-hungry pharaoh. But I can't help reflecting on them in the context of the garden as well. Remember, Rabbi Foreman's take on Adam and Eve was that they did see God as power-hungry. They misconstrued God's command not to eat of the fruit as a power play, and they wanted a taste of that power too. But when they took it, it went to their heads. They nearly put the tree of life in danger. So here we are, centuries later, take two, and what does God do? He still wants us to connect to the tree of life first. He still gives us that opportunity at Sinai, but even before that, when we get the manna, it's like maybe he already knows. We may not be able to handle that. So maybe this time he meets us halfway. You really want those fruit? Fine. I'll give you a taste, but on my terms. So you understand, these laws aren't about power, mine or yours. But if our relationship to the fruit, to knowledge of good and evil, isn't about the Elohim-like power that it can give us, what is it about? To answer that question, I need to introduce you to our angel. So let's meet that angel. Rabbi Foreman and I jumped back into the text, starting with verse 13. Right after all these laws, uh, Yehoshua is in Jericho, and he lifts his eyes and he sees. Is this the same language that you have with Moses in the burning bush? No, not quite, but it's very similar language, right? Uh Something, a sight catches the eye of Joshua and it's like, oh, wow, we remember like a person all alone. He sees something Marvelous, right? Go ahead. Right, and there is a man that is standing against him. And he has a, a sword that is stretched out in his hand. Uh, and there's that sword. Are you with us or are you with our enemies? So here you've got one, one angel and a sword. And Joshua wants to know, whose side are you on? Almost like, I'm not sure about the sword. Is this against me? Is it for me? Is it reversible? Oh, interesting. It's a reversing sword. Cool. Keep on reading. Vayomer lo. He says, no, 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 it's not not what you think. I'm not for you or against you. I'm the minister of the host of God. I have come now. You know what's interesting about the Atabati? If we're really right about this being the final revelation of the tree, think about the last time we saw the tree when we were banished. Go back to that verse, chapter 3, verse 23, that verse we've been focusing on so much in previous episodes, the verse of the banishment. Mm-hmm. It goes like this. Mm-hmm. God says, Now mankind has become like one of us with this premature knowledge of good and evil, like only one of us, the Elohim side of God. But he's abandoned the Yudke Vavke side of God. Va'ata, and now, pen yishlach gam olam. And now, oh, wow. lest he stretch forth his hand and take from the tree I don't want to eat, he has to be banished. And now, what if one of the Kruvim is back? And the Va'ata is back. We're back at that critical moment. But this time, we're on our way in, not out. And the Kruv hands over a custody of the tree 
to the man who was once banished. It's the changing of the guard. It's the Kruv saying to the man, now you're in charge. Fascinating. Are you suggesting that the penny schlach, the worry that man would uh, grab from the tree of life through a tree of knowledge uh, perspective, that worry has gone away? For better or for worse, man is now being given custody of the fruits of this tree to do what he will with. Keep on reading. Joshua falls on his face, Artza, towards the land. And he bows down. He says to him, Ma Adoni Medaber El Abdo. What are you, my master, this uh, angel of God? What are you saying to, you know, his servant? Right? And there's that word uh, of, of Do. Oh, right? wow. So, I hadn't thought right of that. The, Very good. That, there it is. It's like I'm ready to be obeyed. That's fascinating, you move. This obeyed reference goes back to something we talked about last episode. When Adam was put in the garden, he was given the job to serve and to guard. After the exile, the angels take over the guarding part, but no one's there to serve. Only now it's like Joshua saying, hey, we're back. El Avda, what do you say to your Oved one? Because you were the Shomer one, right? But now I am the Oved. I am a servant, just as Moshe was a servant. What do you say to your servant. So let's see what he says. Uh, this uh, angel of God uh, says to Joshua, uh, remove your shoe from your uh, feet. Because the place that you're standing on, Kodeshu, is holy. Is that like word for word what the angel says to Moses at the burning that bush? That is word for word what the angel says at the burning bush. And that is the Torah hitting you over the head and saying, don't you see this is a burning bush story? Okay, fair. You've convinced me. It really does feel like these stories, the, the Torah is is begging you to read them together, one with the other. Right. And, and now you've really filled in the why, uh, right? These are, these are bookends, right? Back then there was no land, uh, but now the, the laws are now down to earth, literally, right? They're, they're from heaven to earth, they have practical relevance. And now it's us to be obeyed them. So there you go. Overlay the burning bush story with this encounter in Joshua, and we have our full set, every detail of the last vision of the tree. But at this point, I was more than convinced of the connection between these stories, and far more interested in the meaning Rabbi Foreman was drawing from that connection. Adam and Eve wanted the fruit for the power it could give them. Joshua's encounter with the angels seems to set the opposite tone. He's submissive. He bows. He calls himself a servant. He removes his shoes. It's like he's standing back at the gate to Eden, back in front of the crew with the sword. But Joshua is doing everything he can to show that he's no longer a threat. He can be let back in. It's like we finally get to eat from the tree only when we finally understand that our job is to serve it. But let's break that lesson down for a minute. Because to be ovade a garden means to water it, to prune it. What does it mean to be ovade a bunch of laws? Does that just mean keeping them? Rabbi Foreman thought there was more to the metaphor. And to get there, he took a step back to ask a different question. Why was it that after Adam and Eve were exiled, the angels only took over the job of guarding the garden? Why didn't they work the land as well? The implication is that there's something about avoda, working the land, that requires 
a human touch. But what is that? And what does that teach us about the nature of what avoda is? If I'm God, and if I've got these really handy um, angel replacements, why don't I just tell them to serve and protect the garden? Right, there's got to be something about angels that uh, makes them unable to serve, and something about mankind that makes them ideal for service. So if we take the spiritual nature of the trees into account now, if we say these aren't just regular trees, but these are trees that represent God's commands, so all of a sudden service doesn't just mean tilling the ground anymore at some level, even though that might have been physically what it was in the garden, but in some way that's related to some other kind of service, why might that other kind of service be something that only man can do and not angels? Even just in a biological sense, perhaps avoda is not possible for, by a angelic being, right? Like man, we have a symbiotic relationship with the plant world, right? Like we breathe out carbon dioxide, which is what plants breathe in. And they breathe out oxygen, which is what we breathe in. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what, what angels breathe out or in, but it seems like... Right. Angels aren't part of the dynamic. We have this natural dynamic with trees, right? And we it's almost like we have this natural dynamic with God's will as expressed in his commands and that, you know, they do something for us and we do something for him. It's a, the yeah. Angels aren't part of that covenant. You keep bringing it back to commands, and that makes me think actually really differently about commands. And I'm curious to see where we go with this. It makes me wonder whether commands are not just about obeying, but they're about relationships. Maybe there's some sort of symbiotic relationship where uh, in the same way that uh, us and plants sustain one another, perhaps you know there's some sort of relationship between us and God that happens through the commands. This idea of a symbiotic relationship with the commandments reminded Rabbi Foreman of the Shema. Not as random as it sounds. The second paragraph of Shema basically describes what the people in Joshua are actually living. It lays out a deal between us and God in the land. If we keep the commandments, he'll bring the rain. But the last verse of that paragraph is really strange. Rabbi Foreman and I had spent some time pondering it last summer, and he was reminded of that now. The verse says, that you should do God's mitzvahs, so do God's mitzvahs, so that your days be lengthened on the land like the days of sky on the land. And if you do the little equation, it sounds like you're like sky. Your days on the land should be like the days of sky on the land. You equals sky. And, you know, you and I were pondering this over the summer. We talked about, like, in what ways are we like the sky? And we noted that in that section of Shema, we talk a lot about rain. And rain is this interesting interaction between the sky and land. You'll be able to last on the land because there's all this rain. And then I suggested that, well, if, if you're like sky, that means that you're supposed to do the rain. So how do we make it rain? We can reach into the sky, so to speak, with reference to God's commands. There are these abstract ideas, these mitzvot, and these mitzvot start in the sky as Moshe says, they're not in the sky anymore. He reached and took them from the sky in heaven. But in essence, we're taking these sky ideas, these abstract ideas, and by translating them through our bodies into actual action on the earth, we're making a difference in the land. And that's kind of what rain does. Rain is this connecting force between the sky and land. We too are making the land, the world, a better place through our serving God, through these mitzvahs. And what's the serving? Serving is almost like we're raining on the land. 
which is an amplification of the service that we did in the garden. Well, back in the garden, right? what happened there? God made it rain, but our job as being Oved would have been to like irrigate the ground, make sure that the, take water from the rivers and water those trees. Isn't it interesting that that sort of gets translated into Shema to like, you know what the ultimate in providing water would be? If you man could make it rain, if you obeyed the commands, it's almost like there's this feedback loop, Imu, between being Oved the garden, which is serving the garden, not just watering it, but helping make it rain by bringing these spiritual ideas down into the ground somehow, it gets to that point that somehow we, we make the tree luscious, we make the tree vibrant by making it relevant in the world, by actually doing God's commands in the world. So that has somehow redounds to the benefit of the tree. And then what we get out of it is we get to eat its fruits. Well, what are the fruits of this tree? These ideas about good and evil. It's almost like we eat these fruits, we get these ideas about good and evil. And then God's got these commands in the sky that sort of take those ideas about good and evil and give them shape. And we reach into the sky and we take those commands and make it rain. These aren't just static laws that are written in a book. But by doing them, we're changing the world. We're making the world a better place. We're doing what a person should do if they wanted to cultivate a garden, providing water for a tree. Through the help of Shema, Rabbi Foreman had painted a vivid picture of what it means for us to be Oved, to serve. Just like rain comes from the sky and nourishes the earth and helps its produce grow, we bring God's commands down from the sky and use them to nourish ourselves and our societies, helping those societies flourish as centers of justice and goodness, which we all benefit from. It's almost like we're part of a spiritual ecosystem, and that's what eating and tending to the fruit is really about. Sitting back, it was amazing to me how we'd gone from Joshua's small, personal encounter with the angel to this epic picture of the nation making it rain. It's kind of another way the story here in Joshua parallels what we saw in Exodus. First, Moshe encounters yud Vavke at the bush, then the people as a whole encounter yud Vavke at Sinai. Well, here too, first Joshua re-accepts the responsibility of eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and then, somewhere along the way, this encounter grows from one individual to the nation. And actually, Rabbi Foreman's about to show us where he suspects this happened. Turns out, just like there's a burning bush moment in Joshua, there is a Sinai moment in this story too, if we just keep reading. And this, dear listener, brings us to the final stop on our journey, the completion of of Revelation 2.0. Remember we talked about last time about how we were supposed to go up the mountain? Yes. The moment we were supposed to go up the mountain was when there was a shofar blast, the blast yes. of the Yovel? Yes. It turns out that there's another shofar blast if you keep on reading. right? As Famously, we go around the Jericho seven times, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And then take a look at verse 5. And it was in the, uh, uh, or it shall be in the blowing of the uh, horn of Jubilee of the Yovel, et kol hashofar, when you hear the voice of the shofar, yariu kol ha'am teruagdola, right? The, uh, all the people shall uh, make a great uh, cry. 
Benafla chomat ha'ir, and the uh, walls of the city shall fall, tachtel, ve'aluha am ish negdo, and the people should go up, right? So just like at Sinai, where there's bimshoch ha'yovel hema ya'alu bahar, here there's a bimshoch ha'yovel, the people are going to alu on the city, which and is crazy, it, isn't it? Because, because that seems to say that right, the mountain of God uh, which we're saying is Eden is now going to become Jericho somehow, exactly. right? The the that's that's what the the algebra suggests, right? And it's like this is God's mountain because this is God's place because God said, "Okay, I'm the owner, I'm the owner of Sinai, the owner of Jericho. This is my garden. You're guests in my garden now." Which of course is why it's called the Shofar of the Yovel, right? Because what's the Yovel? It's the time. It's the time every fifty years where we remember. You know what? We don't really own this land after all, right? There's another owner, right? There's God. And somehow we're hearing these resonances, not just at the burning bush, but at Sinai. And it's as if there's another revelation of the Torah. This is not the revelation of the tree of life. It's the revelation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's the revelation of the practical side of Torah, right? Now you're in the land and you've been deputized by God as the, the ones in charge now. So now you got to figure out what to do. And now good and evil becomes relevant. Somehow the man who was banished from the last garden and the, and the garden has shriveled because he wasn't there to be ovated has to fix that, has to come into the garden. Amazing, beautiful. Uh, gives a whole new meaning to, to our purpose in life, Israel's purpose in the land. All right, Emu, it's been wonderful. After this whole long journey, we end up where we started, back, ostensibly, in the garden, in God's land. And amazingly, we're finally, finally allowed, nay, encouraged, to eat of the forbidden fruit. You know, so much ink has been spilled over the sin of eating the fruit, how it was the beginning of the end, the gateway into everything wrong with humanity. But Rabbi Foreman's take is just the opposite. In the right time and the right way, Eating the fruit is what we're all working towards. We just need to behold the beauty of the tree of life first. And that is the story Rabbi Foreman promised you. The story hidden in the setting of the garden. The story that somehow, step by step, text by text, had turned into the story of the Israelites. And I think in many ways, the story of all of us. What it means to be a fragmented and imperfect human being trying and failing and trying again to reach the divine. There's really something beautiful about the nuanced and complex relationship we have with God and with Torah that I'd only seen by following this winding path with Rabbi Foreman, through Gan Eden, Sinai, Revelation, and finally our entrance into the land. But now that we'd come to the end of this story, my mind was reeling with the possibilities and implications of everything we'd learned. What does this all mean for Judaism? What does it mean for me? It was at once very exciting and thrilling and compelling, but also simultaneously really confusing. Because when I looked back at the claims we made, they also felt all over the place. Trees turning into texts, fruits turning into commandments. How does any of that even work? And what really was I supposed to take from it? And strangest of all, in some ways, Torah now felt like a bidyeved, a second thought. Plan B, as we'd called it. So... Is that a step up from the tree or a step down? And what does that mean for how I should relate to Torah? Was I supposed to go out and hug a tree? Counterintuitively, the Torah tree connection was interfering with my love of this document. 
And simultaneously, I was captivated by how Torah may even be more tree-like and how I could help it come to life and blossom. But I wouldn't find clarity on any of this until I sat down with Rabbi Foreman for one last conversation. Next time on A Book Like No Other, Rabbi Foreman and I take a step back to reflect on the bewildering relationship we've been seeing between the Torah and the tree and surprise ourselves to discover there's something we've been getting wrong this entire time. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta, a nonprofit media company dedicated to helping people fall in love with Torah. If you like what you're listening to, I'm going to ask you if you can please consider joining the ranks of our paid members at alephbeta.org. Aleph Beta is a little bit of a weird nonprofit. We're almost entirely crowdfunded by people like you. So I just want to make this plea that if this Torah meant something to you, it's up to individuals like you who actually vote with their contributions with their small donations to say, hey, I believe in this. I like what you're doing. Your contributions go towards teaching and spreading high quality Torah to as many people as we possibly can. If that mission matters to you, and if you wanna support it, it means the world to us. Thank you for partnering with us and enabling us to do this really meaningful work. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and me, Imu Shalev. It was edited by Tikva Hecht with additional edits by Evan Wiener. Audio editing was done by Hilary Gutman. A Book Like No Other's senior editor is Tikva Hecht. Adina Blausin keeps all the parts moving. I have a question, by the way. Um... What do you make of the fact that um, it's Har Elohim when we're shown what seems to be a tree of life and that it's a Tsar Tzva Yud Kevavke? What is it? Har Elohim Chareva, you mean? That's very tricky and interesting. I want to argue that... Like following through the names. The burning bush is the moment of switch. It's the moment of revelation of Yud Kevavke. So, so until then, it's Har Elohim, right? In other words, in its state of Shmira. Right, the, the, of all it is is Har Elohim. Uh huh. And that's why man has to stay away. Yeah. And then, and then we're taught about Yud Kevavke. We make a relationship with Yud Kevavke. In that sense, we are learning to approach it in a Nechmad state first. And yes. then that's when the Sartzva Yud Kevavke comes and says, okay, you're ready. So you're ready. I'm, I'm letting you. I'm letting you come. I'm, so the Tsar Yudke Vavke, the same Yudke Vavke who banished you because you didn't recognize him, is willing to bring you back to let you eat from these dangerous fruits because the hope is that you've come to recognize the loving, connected God, and now you can eat the fruits in a way that can be successful. Beautiful. I have to tell you, um, the number of plants in my house have like 10x <laughs> since since doing this course but this was awesome as usual well cool it was so cool yeah all right really amazing see you